Amen. Hey, we're going to spend the lion's share of our time this morning in Romans 8, 18 through 25. If you want to begin to kind of make your way there, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Uh, we're going to be a bunch of different places, but that's, that's where we're going to camp out for a little while. So you can uh, put a finger, put a bookmark or whatever there. Uh, when I think about kind of expectation and, and longing and looking forward to something or just kind of expectation and maybe it's not looking forward a couple of things uh, immediately popped to mind. I remember being a kid, and, and just it's this overwhelming sense of, I cannot wait for Christmas to get here when I can get presents, right? And so there's some under the tree. And then as a kid, I remember finding the place where my parents hid presents. <laughs> and we lived in this house that had a basement, and I opened a door I'd never opened before, and it was just like, all these box toys. Who's going to get the box toys? And then I saw a rat in the corner. And so I quickly closed the door. And then I told my dad that I had gone downstairs into the basement. And he said, you didn't see the beast, did you? I was like three or four. So I'm like, beast? He said, yeah. There's a blood-sucking rat in the basement. And if you go in there, he will eat you alive. So then I have these competing things kind of working inside me. I'm thinking behind this door rests like Toys R Us in miniature in the beast. Is he playing with the toys? Is he guarding the toys? Because still I want them, but now I'm afraid of them and afraid of him and what he's doing with them. And how is he going to freely relinquish them? And how is this all going to work? And and even back, I can't remember what I got, but I remember the beast vividly. And to this day, I'm still afraid of uh, rodents. And then there's kind of the other side of expectation. So that was certainly one I wanted to see come to pass. I wanted to get that. I wanted to see this obstacle overcome. And, and I recently had some, some blood work done, and I was fairly certain it wasn't going to come back great, that, that it was going to be you know, the end of bacon as we know it. And so I went on kind of like a farewell to bacon tour. And and when I was out this week and my phone rang and I didn't recognize the number, I was fairly sure it was uh, the doctor. I just thought, where's a bacon sandwich when you need it, right? And so it's this idea that, that I had expectation working in both realms, one that I was looking forward and the other one that I was fairly certain was going to be the end of bacon as we know it. And so I'm trying to, to live a post-bacon life and I'm failing. But there you go. And so as we think about the sense of expectation, what I want you to understand is that all of creation has a longing sense of expectation at the coming of Jesus. All of creation. God created in Genesis 1, and, and he made this beautiful masterpiece. And Genesis opens up, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without void and darkness over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we see this amazing picture that this all-powerful God, this transcendent being, far and removed, came close and intimate. He formed in fashion with his voice. He formed in fashion perfection out of nothing. And in the midst of this creation, God formed uh, all the birds of the sky. He formed all the fish of the waters. And then the coup de grace of his creation, the height of his creative endeavor, he created humanity. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says he created male and female. He created man in his image and in his likeness. He created man to enjoy and to subdue creation. And so this intimate thing happens. You see, man and woman, Adam and Eve, are forebears. They're in the garden with God. Think about the intimacy of that moment. 
walking with God. They're communing with God. They lay on their back at night. They look up at the heavens, and he declares, this is where I place this star. This is what this star is. And it's the day, and they walk through, and Adam points over, and he says, what's the deal with the duck-billed platypus? God said, that's just a little bit of whimsy. I get that. But the beautiful, perfect creation in this community that God has created with himself at the center, in the midst of perfection, Adam and Eve believed a lie. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the serpent showed up and it began to feed them a lie that somehow God was keeping something from them, that somehow God's best was kept from them. And so they wanted something other than God. They wanted to exchange this close intimacy and union and fellowship with God for something better than that they had not yet experienced. So if you've been in church for very long, you remember the tale of the fall. They take, they eat, and their eyes are open, and they know that they're naked. And so God arrives, and he begins to have this conversation with them. Quickly, he uncovers and shows them that he knows that they have disobeyed him, that they've taken from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, that their eyes are open. And so God moves forward, and he gives this address, starting in Genesis 3.15. We're going to read through 19, and then we're going to focus on the latter half of this. But look at 15. Before he begins the curse, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Prior to the curse on humanity and the curse on creation, God tells the way of redemption. Genesis 3.15, God gives us this beautiful picture of how Christ would come and he would crush the head of the serpent and therefore set all of humanity and set creation free. And then he goes through and he discusses the curse to the woman. He says, surely I'll multiply uh, your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth the children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So he turned to the ground, the ground that had formerly just sprung forth vegetation, the ground that had formerly been the type of garden I've always wanted where you just drop seeds and stuff pops up. You just drop seed and stuff pops up. There's no blight. There, there's nothing going wrong. There's no like mixing and doctoring the soil. There's no adequately watering. You just drop seed and stuff pops up and it's delicious. But he says, because of you, curse shall be the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. I've got this. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So every subsequent generation asks the question, when will come the one who will crush the head of the serpent? When will come the one who will lift the burden when will come the one when we'll experience freedom? The guilt will be absolved. The, the punishment for sin will be taken. Even within the Old Testament, Isaiah gives us this beautiful picture in Isaiah 65 and verse 17. He says, for behold, I create, speaking of God, he says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And so Isaiah, in his heart, in the midst of kind of discussing the exile, he says, this is what God is going to do. He's going to engage once more in a creative endeavor. He's going to engage once more in setting all things right. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And read how he describes them. He says, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
in Isaiah's mind in the way he records this and communicates this to incredibly disobedient people preparing for exile. He said the recreative work that our God will engage in is going to be so glorious and so beautiful that you won't even be able to think about what it used to look like. There won't be this any of coming into the room saying, I remember how great and how glorious it was. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to put all those things out of mind. Everything is going to pale in comparison to how amazing this is going to be. In essence, you could say everything that is broken will be made whole. Everything that is marred will be made beautiful. God is in the business of restoration. So then we look at our lives. And we think, what sense of expectation does, does the awaiting creation say to me? What, what sense of expectation and longing and desiring, what about that in creation does that say to me? Well, Paul gives us this answer in Romans 8, 18 through 25. Let's work through this together. Paul opens up and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul writes to this community that's, that's in some turmoil, some difficulty, and he addresses their situation. Look at how he notices it here. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time. He doesn't look and say the sufferings going on in your life, that they just don't matter. They're non-substantive. They're not real. They're illusory. So I lost my job. My health is in is in a bad state. My relationship with my spouse is in a bad state. I'm feeling persecution just for the fact that I'm a Christian in the workplace. My kids are walking away from the faith. My parents are walking away from the faith. My wife and I are about to get a divorce. My parents got a divorce. So Paul doesn't look at your distress. He doesn't look at your suffering and your difficulty and say, get over it, what's wrong with you? He looks at this and says, when you compare the difficulty of your life now with how great it is going to be, the comparison's not worth making. So he's building inside of us this sense of expectation. See, if you, want, if you read this and look away, and, and, and your takeaway is that this is going to be better than, you miss it. He doesn't say this is going to be better than. He says, when we reflect on how good the glory to be revealed to us is, we can't even remember the pitiable state that we're currently in. So he's building into us a sense of expectation and a desire. There's something so much better waiting for us. Do you know this? If you've made this life all that you've ever hoped it to be, if your sense of expectation is on forming and fashioning this life and the relationships around you and your world and your house and your community to be your kingdom, you will be disappointed. What God asks the Christians to be aware of is that in our hearts is a longing for something that we can never see come to fruition here. It's a longing for something that we can never see fully realized here. Every relationship's going to fail. Everybody's going to break down. Every system will meet its end. Because we weren't made for this place. So he wants us to understand that. So he begins in 19 to compare what we're waiting for with creation. In verse 19 he says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He anthropomorphizes. He gets human characteristics to creation. In essence, you can see this, that creation looks at you. It looks at Philip. It looks at Janie. It looks at Chase. And it says, the thing going on inside of you, 
the amazing privilege you have as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Creation wants to see that. Creation longs for that. The Phillips translation says it this way. It says that all of creation stands on tiptoe to get a peek at what is going on inside of you. Creation wakes with eager longing for all that is in you to be stripped away and you to be revealed for who you are, for who God is making you to be. Why? As we just read in in creation, this account of, of the ground being cursed, of thorns and thistles springing up. Verse 20 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It wasn't that creation looked at it and said, well, this is great, this is wonderful, Adam and Eve messed up, and so just bring it, bring the pain to us. God subjected creation, the one who spoke and the world sprung into existence, the one who, out of his creative endeavor and his creative majesty, created all things, took creation and subjected it, brought it to futility, made it so that it couldn't live the way that it was destined and designed to live. He frustrated it. And we see this all over the place. We see it in the earthquake in Alaska. We see it in the forest fires of California. We see it in the floods of India. We see it in the hot. We see it in the cold. We see it in the drought. We see it in famine. We see the impact of the devastating effect on creation in the face of a child who's starving to death. So we recognize this. God has subjected creation. He's brought it to futility, but recognize this. He didn't do this with no end in sight. Paul carefully appends to this the idea that he subjected it to futility in hope. There's this great hope that the chaos will come to an end. There's this great hope that that the pain and the suffering will be no more. What is the hope? 21 goes on and says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption... It is enslaved to breaking down. Creation is enslaved to going wrong, to being this system that just doesn't function the way it's intended. And why is this? It's not because God created a faulty system. It's not because God designed the ecosystem not to function well. He designed it to be perfect, but he subjected it to futility on the basis of our sin. Our sin has a spillover effect that devastatingly affects creation. And we can see this today. In our hunger and zeal for more, we rape and pillage the earth. In Adam and Eve's desire for more, they kick God to the side so that they could have their heart and appetite set on something temporary, something passing, something more. Look at 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now i got to be honest, I did not know, and I, as you can tell, I've never personally experienced childbirth. This may be news to some of you. But I've watched my wife go into labor three times, and three times I stood very quiet, very still, and, and, and just tried to be very reassuring. And having heard the pains of childbirth, now I'm absolutely firmly convinced I could never uh, do that. Um, the Beasley line would die. This looks painful. This looks super uncomfortable. Could we get a puppy instead? The puppy chews on things. Could we get, well, I'm already afraid of roses, so we can't get a hamster. 
Let's go get teddy bears. But this is this picture of creation. He says all creation has been groaning together. It's not groaning because it's angry, it's sad, or it's upset. Creation's groaning because it has this sense of expectation of what awaits the other side of childbearing. This, this sense that, that when these pangs of childbirth are over, something wonderful and glorious awaits. Something as God has intended, something as God has designed. Creation living up to how he designed it. Creation being full and beautiful and not in futility, but in perfection. He makes broken things whole. What about us? It's one thing to talk abstractly about creation and this idea that creation's frustrated. And if you've tried to grow a garden, that you get this. And if you've driven uh, in the midst of a heat wave and a drought, you see this. And if you've seen famine on the news or up close and in person, your heart goes out to them. But for most of, these, most of us, these things are abstractions. For most of us, these things are remote. But Paul turns it and he brings it close to our heart. Look what he says. And not only creation, but we ourselves. Paul does this fantastic thing here. You have the ability to use we in this corporate sense, which lumps all of us together, right? As one big family, one big gathering, one big unit. But what he does here is he, he breaks it out. He compartmentalizes it. He says, we ourselves. And so he doesn't say just as some large amorphous blob, but he says, you as an individual who are living together and, and creating a family, you have individual hurt. You have individual pain. Creation doesn't groan. Creation doesn't hurt. It, it, irrespective of how you feel, you have hurt. You have pain. And so he moves in and he validates this sense of frustration that my life in some sense is not how it was designed, that my life in some sense is not living up to its full potential. Why? Not because I failed, but because all of creation was subjugated. And the sting and stain of sin mars every relationship that I could ever be engaged in. It means I'm a person who is hurt and I'm a person who hurts. It means I'm a person who disappoints and I'm a person who's disappointed. He says, we ourselves. But he turns and he pivots and he gives it this beautiful approach. He says, we ourselves, we the broken, we the hurting, we the marred, we the disappointed, we have the Spirit. He says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, described the wonderful presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Speaking of Jesus, he said in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, when you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you confessed your sin before him, your need for a Savior, and you fell hard upon the grace of Jesus. He says, In him you also. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what is this Spirit? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We have this amazing hope, this amazing promise. We have the pledge. We are the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the pledge of God at work with inside of you. And this is what we do. He says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And what is that? It is the redemption of our bodies. 
Now, Paul has already given us this picture immediately prior to this passage that, that we have sonship. In verse 15 of chapter 8, he had said, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. The reason we groan inwardly, the reason we recognize this is because we live in a fallen, broken world. There's an aspect of us in the way we live in our bodies that we recognize our bodies break down. No matter the supplements you take, no matter how much you exercise, you cannot stop the effects of gravity and age, right? You you just can't. You can take steps. We're on the same page. But you can't stop these things. Since we're waiting for something expectantly, Your life should be lived with a radical sense of expectation and thanksgiving. If this life and where you're at now is the best it's ever going to get, that is cause for disappointment. That's cause for a humbug. That's cause for for disappointment. That's cause to abandon uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving and move to the woods and become a hermit. Like That's cause for radical disappointment, but that's not what you were created for. God has given to each of us an understanding inborn within us, the testimony of his spirit, that this is not all there is. John 14, Jesus is preparing the disciples. He's going to go away. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you this, but I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. Our body, this outer shell, as Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians, is wasting away, but there awaits for us the full redemption and glorification of our bodies. There awaits for us that our outside would match our inside, that the temporal and broken and finite shell that contains my soul would be renewed and will be renewed. And so the outside gives us a picture that this process is not outwardly, it is not fully complete and satisfied. Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. This hope that, that there's something else, that there's something more, that, that, that we're sojourners and aliens in the land, that there is something waiting for us. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead and decaying hope, not a stifled hope, but a living, vibrant hope that draws breath. And through what agency? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what end? He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And it is God's power working in you to guard you and keep you safe until the end. We have hope. That just as God is working to fix all the broken things in creation, he's working to fix all the broken things in us. We look around and we say, man, I just don't see it. Look around, I see war. I look around, I see famine. I look around, I see heartbreak. I look in the mirror and I see disappointment. 
Paul just wants to bring us to this attention. He says, you know, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Imagine if every day you, you stand in front of the mirror and, and you want to see pronounced changes uh, in your body. You're exercising or you're bald and you're using Rogaine. Like you want to see pronounced changes in your body. Come on now. Pronounced changes in your body. And you begin to see these things. You begin to witness these things. So you're not hoping in something you don't see. You're hoping in something you can check. Paul says when you can see it, when you can hold witness to it, it's not hope. And so we hope for these things that we cannot see. But we hope with patience. A better translation says we hope with patient endurance. John gives us this beautiful picture of what this hope and what we're waiting for in terms of Advent and creation. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, I just want us to focus here for just a minute and then we'll be done. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he's saying it's beautiful. And it's, it's what we've been waiting for. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Do you recognize what he's doing? He's taking us back to the garden. This place of incredible intimacy that was broken by us, God is restoring. Uninterrupted intimacy and communion with God. And he says, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. Everything broken, he fixes. All the broken things are made whole. That is our hope. And that is our expectation. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and you do good. God, I pray that you would call us to walk in fellowship with you. That you would lead us in paths of righteousness. And God, as we transition and prepare to take the Lord's Supper, help us not just to focus on your sacrifice, but God, cause us to wait with a sense of hope and expectation at your coming again. Help us to worship you in this time as we memorialize your sacrifice and we look forward to your coming again. And Father, I pray for those in this room who yeah, they are still trying to figure out where they stand with you, that they would recognize that they could stand with you through Jesus, being forgiven in him. Help them to confess their sins, to turn and to believe on Jesus, to call out for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life found in him. Help them to want Jesus. So God, I pray that your spirit would be in this place, that you'd be moving in our midst as we take your supper and observe his sacrifice and look forward to his coming again. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.